right. So hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Book Cafe podcast. In today's episode, we will be talking about this book behind me entitled Heart Tantrums, A Feminist Memoir on Misogyny and Marriage. And my conversation partners for this episode is a power couple all the way from Islamabad, Pakistan, Aisha Sarwari and her husband, Barrister Yasser Latif Amdani. So guys, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Omar. Thank you for having us. So uh, for our viewers and listeners who have been with the show for a while, uh, a lot of you will remember uh, Barrister Yasser Latif Hamdani from episode eight, where we spoke about this book right here behind me entitled Dimna A Life. So definitely do check out that episode after you have watched or listened to this episode. So Aisha, obviously, um, we our viewers and listeners are quite knowledgeable about uh, Yasser and the book. He is, of course, Mr. Jinnah's biographer. But this is your first appearance on the show, on the podcast. So uh, before we get to talking about the book, would you like to give us a short introduction? And then we'll dive into the book. So yeah, please go ahead. Sure. Um, so I, um, I think mostly nowadays in my 40s, I identify as a woman because that has always been a very uh, strong part of my identity. Um, whereas when you know when you're 20, you're pretty gender blind. You think you can change the world, and the world is a fair place. And then somewhere along the ro- uh, road, you understand that uh, some people have a head start. And in my case, I always felt that I have a head start. And, you know, that then became a very big part of my identity. Um, And it took over a previous identity, which I had, which was I started off being Pakistani more than anything else in the world. You know, in my 20s, Yasser and I met um, at college and he knows this. I was, you know, this very gung-ho Pakistani and um, I still am in a way, but I think they're merging of those two identities now where I'm a Pakistani woman or a woman of Pakistani origin and who is a Pakistani. So I think those two have merged in the last, um, you know, I would say decade or last two decades, whereas the first half of my my life was about being Pakistani. My dad was supremely, you know, a a patriotic Pakistani who had a very deep sense of identity. And the second, uh, (laughs) you know, the the next time, you know, I was with a husband who had the same passion for identity and somewhere in the middle I came in with my feminist flag um, merging all all these three identities that we feel together and uh, the debut book Heart Tantrums uh, in Hearst uh, which is my other publication in um, UK it goes by the name of Heart Tantrums and Brain Tumors so it was really about how does a woman merge her identity as a woman necessarily a wife or she has a sick husband how does disease or a brain tumor impact the identity of a woman who um you know not necessarily is known by her husband or you know has a, so it really jarred my status in the world uh if i had a sick husband so what did it mean and i think these are all important questions that i try to answer in the book mm-hmm. absolutely and thank you so much aisha for that brief introduction and we will of course deep dive into all of the points that you had mentioned um, and uh, and you rightly mentioned that the book, in fact, goes by another name with another publisher, and it actually came out originally in 2019, and then this one came out in 2023. So just for my knowledge, um, is there a difference between the two editions? Is there more material in this one as compared to the 2019 edition, if you could help us understand that? Um, so over they both came out at the same time. It's just that uh, Heart Tantrums is an Indian publisher. Penguin and, uh, Heart Tantrums and Brain Tumors is the same book, but it's uh, with a UK publisher by the name of Hearst. Came out at the same time. 
Okay, so they both came out at the same time. Okay, so yeah. so I stand corrected. Okay, um, so so the next question, Aisha, would be um, so this is obviously your memoirs, and if I can just uh, make a comparison, uh, we were very uh, privileged to host uh, Mr. Kabir Bedi, the Bollywood superstar, a couple of episodes back about his book entitled mm -hmm. uh, "Stories I Must Tell," and he had written that book as a septuagenarian mm -hmm. when he was already in his seventies. And, and his memoirs was actually, uh, as far as I can understand, a counter to his late wife, Prothuma Bedi's memoirs, which came out posthumously uh, in 1999. And so uh, uh, it's, it, it behooves me to say that, you know, these sort of tell-all books or tell-all memoirs usually get written at an advanced age in life, or perhaps they get published posthumously. Whereas your story mm -hmm. is living history. Uh, you guys are still living it. So why did you decide to publish it at this point in time rather than at a later date, if you could help us understand that? Um, so I think mental health trauma, traumatic brain injury, brain surgery, brain tumors, you know, mental health disorders like schizophrenia, this is a different realm altogether, you know, and you live several lives at the same time. Uh, the patient lives it, the caregiver lives it, and, you know, it, it's it's superbly scientific, but it's also a question of philosophy as well, right? Um, what does it mean uh, when somebody is um, unwell or cannot be, you know, say, you know, their, ex their experience, you know, what they're saying or doing is something that is really a chemical cocktail in their brain. And so what does that do to a relationship? What does it do to love or romance? Or what does it do to the idea of marriage? Um, you know, take the foundations of, of all of those things. So I think those are all questions that once everything goes, you know, you've lost the person, you've lost his personality, you've lost the reason you exist in so many ways. You know, when everything is gone, what are those two or three philosophical things that still make you connect to each other, you know? And so those were worth exploring. And I think that the memoir, in a way, I have lost my husband in the boy that I had married um, altered or changed. Um, and, you know, every time, every year, we have to reinvent our relationship because um, it changed. By the way, as a caregiver, I think that I'm very honest about the challenges that caregivers face and then how trauma affects the brain. And then I challenge this idea that, you know, you're not necessarily well if you don't have, not have a tumor and be very impacted by trauma to an extent that maybe you're just as sick as a sick person. So these are all, you know, they, they made for an interesting tale. And I think whoever read it, this was their story because they've always had somebody in the family who fell ill, not necessarily through brain tumors, but who fell ill and it impacted them and, you know, impacted the entire dynamics of a family. Drug addiction does this. There's so many people who are alcoholics, for instance, and then they see their parents completely go off, you know, and um, or their children for that matter. So anybody who has experienced life in this way, you know, for example, people in the middle as well, you know, um, people come back altered with PTSD. So what does it do to what they come back to? So um, I think uh, although I wrote it, um, assuming Yasser not left us off, let's also <laughs> he surprised me and um you know, it was supposed to be about a man who's no longer there, but uh, we're blessed. Thank you, science, to to have him. And 
um, you know, thanks to great surgeons and great medical facilities at the Al Khan, we we are here with the medical miracle. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Yasser, you've been waiting patient all this time. So I'd like to take this opportunity to bring you into the conversation as well. Um, can I ask, when did you find out about Aisha's book project? What was the, when was the first time that you had uh, f uh, found out about the project? And the, given that you have such a uh, high standing in society, you're Mr. Jinnah's biographer, that is what you're known for. You're known for being the person who got YouTube unbanned in Pakistan. And so it must have been um, a very, was it a difficult decision for you to support Aisha's uh, book publication or how exactly did you, what were your thoughts and feelings about it the first time you got to know about it? Please share that with us. Well, it's, uh, the book itself is, you know, very hard reading, you know, because, you know, I don't, I mean, I either come out as this crazy person or I come out as someone who's absolutely vicious and evil. Uh, so reading it was harder, but I felt uh, at the time when uh, we were uh, right after the second surgery, this was, and there was an article that was published, and I, that's when Aisha decided to write this book, and I was like, you know, uh, go ahead, and you know, the book, and uh, I mean, you know, there's, uh, I would, in my opinion, I mean, I see the discomfort that I do have with some of what is written in the book, but I would not be living up to my own principles as a free speech advocate if I was to object to it. So it was, it really became a question of, you know, I mean, you can't really speak expression and speech and, you know, all those ideals and about Jinnah and everything. And then, you know, you, just you can't turn around and muzzle uh, your partner's free speech as it were. So I, that is, you know, that is how, I approached it. I mean, that's, I tried to, you know, I, I wrote a forward to the book. So I tried to, uh, you know, kind of explain what it was that I was, I mean, I, you know, early years of our marriage, uh, when we look, it's a terrible story, terrible what she's had to endure. Uh, and, you know, not just me, I mean, it's just the, the culture of it, you know, the the shocks. I mean, she was, she was an expat who's coming to Pakistan to the most, uh, of societies within, you know, and that has its own uh, baggage. So, uh, you know, coming into that, the way she's approached it, all of that, this is a story that definitely needed to be told. And I, you know, I, I mean, if, if there's exculpatory uh, speech, I've already given that as a foreword, you know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I mean, what I say in the forward, I, I feel that much of what I did, I do have, I mean, at least I would like to believe that I do have an excuse for it. And uh, that excuse comes out in the book as well, to a certain extent. So, yes, I've been on board. And, uh, it's, it's also, I am sort of a prisoner to my principles. So when they came out, with when they when they asked me this question, you know, there was there were legal forms that needed to be sussed me if, you know, to basically say that I won't sue them, you know, for publishing whatever. So I, you know, it wasn't I didn't it I didn't do a double take on that. I just uh, went ahead and signed it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a it's her struggle and it's her story and it needs to be told. Right, absolutely. And uh, I just want to pick up on one thing you said in your answer. Uh, you mentioned Aisha being an expat. So Aisha, coming back to you, 
I think now is a good opportunity to uh, deep dive a little bit into your origin story. Um, as you mentioned, the book that you grew up in Kampala, Uganda, and East Africa, and uh, uh, just for my knowledge and for our viewers and listeners who may not be as familiar with East Africa, you know, Uganda, Kenya, etc. Uh, what what exactly was life like uh, back in the 80s uh, living in Uganda and Kenya as compared to, for example, apartheid South Africa and Zimbabwe under Ian Smith's regime? Would you say mm -hmm. that uh, life was better off in uh, Uganda and Kenya as compared to these two countries? Or would you say that it was equally difficult? How would you respond? First of all, over, let me appreciate your knowledge. Um, you know, unlike other Desi people, you're not really looking at Africa as a country, which I really appreciate. And when it comes to identity, I must say that a very large part of me is um, is African because in my entire childhood, there I was 15 when I left, 15, yeah, there, thereabouts. And um, it was my formative years. What I did see was a lot of civil war. What I did see was a lot of poverty. I did see a lot of economic. Um, overall, I did see a lot of racism, interestingly, racism targeted towards brown people. And mostly because um, <clears throat> at this time, just as you can see in, in governments that say, let's make America great again, uh, let's go back to our roots, it's happening in France with the pen, etc. What we're seeing in Uganda in the 80s or uh, when I was there was Africa Africans, these expat Pakistanis and Indians who take over our mer merchant, um, you know, trade, who take over our commercial um, shops, and then they oppress us and they, you know, have colorism against us. So expel them. It means time in a voters' time as well. Whereas I get rid of them. Um, you know, whenever governments are failing, they always love to blame somebody else. So at that time, they blamed um, Asians, particularly Indians and Pakistanis. Now, having said that. I also understand why it happened. Pakistanis and Indians particularly are extremely racist towards Africans. So they would actually live in their country and treat them like crap. So um, there was definitely legitimate grievance. Um, but we were the victims of it. It was a teacher. Uh, he you know, started, taught at a high school and then later at a university. Um, and we were like, you know how teacher's kids are. It's actually a hashtag, teacher's kids. You're just really in your own bubble, living on a camp, um, you know, thinking that, um, you know, everything happens for a good reason. And so as an expat, there was this complete blindness towards, frankly, a very genocidal world. Our house was broken into. Uh, shots were fired by these teenage army rebels at my mom. You know, I was a very little kid. You know, my sister would walk back home from school, saw dead bodies on her way. These are, you know, again, generational trauma right. that then when I, the reason I brought it up was because I asked myself, it me, me, in the sense that there's always, uh, you know, what Yasser talks about, uh, you know, is is essentially how somebody, you know, can, you know, be, say, mean somebody in a dynamic that is already patriarchal. But then what happens to the person who's receiving that and not understanding that this could be a sign of a disease and this is not normal? You know, what made me normalize was on his part, just, you know, something that he could not control. And then I had to go back and understand what is it about what we teach girls? What is it in our cultural or religious milieu to submissive by, you know, accepting and receiving and suppressing what you receive rather than raising a flag and saying, hold on, that doesn't seem right. And then I, um, you know, that is where all that Africa story came in. It, it came in as a way of how people who get oppressed 
um, invite oppression in so many ways. So I know this is very hard to hear, and it's I'm not saying that victims deserve it, right? In any form of complex uh, control dynamics, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that it is complex, and it deserves a deep dive into what makes somebody more susceptible to uh, to a cultural put down. The third part of my book, as you're aware, is about workplace dynamics and you know how women entering the workforce are treated similarly. So I explore why it was so easy to receive that in Africa in my childhood. Why it, you know it was easy for me to fall into that uh, during the marriage. And why it was easy for me to fall into the same dynamic at, at the workplace? And we transitioned, the women of Pakistan haven't really fully grasped what is allowed to them and what is not allowed to them. And I think that in Yasser writing that foreword of my book, allowing me to tell the story, my bearing is perhaps the kindest thing um, that has been done to anyone. Because whenever women come forward and say, you know what, I was hurt, usually they're told that they're liars and they're told that you made it up. And they told that it was that bad. Um, and so Yasser's forward really, in in my opinion, is, you know, a testament to why we got together in the first place, because we are things, you know, we believe in, I think, being a prisoner to our to our values. I couldn't not complain or protest. And I guess he couldn't not, not encourage me to in a way, right? And I think that one more thing I would say is that Yasser and I have always looked at ourselves as Individuals, obviously, who are flawed, but we've always been very conscious of what we leave behind in terms of legacy. We're very obsessed people about uh, what does this mean for Pakistan, you know, and we do so much outwardly for history and politics and that kind of thing. But at, in our mid-age, we felt that the reckoning has to be inwards. The lens has to be turned in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. So so thank you so much for that, Aisha. And uh, you mentioned... Um, uh, one of the things that uh, really stood out for me in the book is that you both bonded over your mutual love and respect for Mr. Jinnah, as well as the patriotism that I know that you both have for Pakistan. And uh, and so, Yasser, uh, would you like to tell the story of, about how you both met? And uh, because that was one of the best highlights of the book, as far as I'm concerned. So please go ahead and tell us that. Yeah, no, it was... Um... What happened essentially was there was a website and uh, this website was called chalk.com. It was pretty popular amongst uh, uh, expats, Pakistani and Indian expats. And uh, it so happened that Pakistanis were trolled a lot on it. You know, Pakistanis... We now know that that was cyber harassment. Being victims of cyber harassment. So uh, we were like, you know, that's where it started. He wrote an article... And I went ahead and just proposed to her. You know, I, 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 when I, when I, were, I meant, you know, do you want to go out? You know, and she took it to mean that I'm, you know, sending my mother over for a marriage proposal. Uh, either way, we turned out that, you know, it turned out to be more than a fling. And she, we met in Lahore, we met in Karachi, uh, and then we met in San Jose uh, several times. And, you know, our sort of uh, love affair took over. You know, took it life of its own, and, and you did send your mom, in, yeah. and and then yes, as a matter of fact, your family went to my mom <laughs> <laughs> on invitation. Yeah, it's on invitation. Yeah. Yes. So, but there is some truth to that. Look, I was a girl, um, U.S. with a lot of culture shock. I mean, Uganda, Kenya, and then um, 
and then the US and I felt very homesick and I miss my dad because he, he obviously you know had a very cultural literary side to him that I didn't have and I really sought that so I wrote this article on Kashmir on chalk.com and here comes this person who I didn't know who he was, how old he was, but he said, um, Miss Ivory, are you available? Now to me, in my conservative, that is, that is, I'm sending my mom over to you if you're available. And I was already in my head said yes. Uh, to my defense, I was 19. And, uh, you know, one thinks like that at that age, I would like to say. And then I kind of, you know, chase Yasser down and be like, you know, um, this would be a great idea. And and to, to this time, we have a lot of fights over Jinnah. Like <clears throat> right now, uh, he, he wanted to sit on this chair and said, well, you know what? It's more comfortable for you in the other chair. So I quoted a line um, that Jinnah had said, which is Miss Jinnah will ask for shawl if she wants it. And I often quote this to him, to him that if I need something I will ask for it and so it's this thing with us like when I want to get through to him I do use the the scripture of Jinnah and what he said and what he said in his speeches and and we all cut out like we have a life-size cut out of Jinnah uh, which I try to keep hiding from him because he wants to like keep it with him and I want to keep it with him and we fight because I paid for it and so we do have this childish charm still I I think despite uh, we are friends like we were when we were 19, 20. Um, and that does come up one, one, you know, often enough that, and that keeps us, I guess, grounded. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing that. And of course, uh, the details are in the book, so we won't spoil it for anybody who wants to pick up the book. But yes, the, the details are there. And this small trailer uh, for the book, I, I hope that it encourages everybody to pick it up. So uh, uh, there's one point that I'd like to touch upon, uh, guys, and this question goes out to the both of you. One of the uh, surprising things that I got uh, during your stay in Uganda, uh, Aisha, is that um, it wasn't only, uh, it, there was a divide between the Pakistani Muslim community and the Indian Muslim community with regards to the creation of Pakistan and Mr. Jinnah's ideology. And I had always assumed that perhaps it was the Indian non-Muslim community who probably had, you know, uh, this tension with the Pakistani Muslim community about this. But but the Indian Muslim community also being a part of that debate and discussion was a bit of an eye-opener for me personally. So having said that, uh, and Yasser, uh, I remember that in our last episode, you had your discussions with your uh, batchmates in Rutgers saying that, you know, what does it mean to be a Pakistani and, and having to defend that point. Uh, at this, in this day and age, at this point in time, have you both found the answer to what it means to be a Pakistani? Okay. Look, I think uh, it's one of the questions that has always happened to me on the back, you know, every, every Pakistani's mind, I think, is whether the country would survive. But now at this point in time, I don't feel that the country is going to go away off the map suddenly one day. You know, that's something that we, at least I, much when I was much younger, I felt that, you know, it's just going to break up and stuff. And now those currents are there and everything. What it means to be a Pakistani really is, uh, you know, it's obviously it goes back to the state thing. Anyone who is uh, who's born in Pakistan is a Pakistani and that is how we should look at it. Sure, we started off as this Muslim homeland, you know, and I think what Pakistan means today is what it, uh, is the meaning that people give it, right? And 
there is this now this Pakistani secular Pakistani nation, you know, or etc. etc. Unfortunately, the, the 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 legal regime or the constitutional regime hasn't actually followed it. You know, Pakistan is very much an Islamic republic and that sort of thing. But yes, I found the answer in the sense that I, I am confident that at one point in the future, through enough cycles of democracy, Pakistan will become uh, Pakistan would go down the route of any uh, modern nation state in, say, for example, Europe and stuff. That's my answer, if that makes sense. Okay. And Aisha, anything that um, you'd like to or, add to me? Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought up the, the Indian Muslim identity because, by the way, that's 50% of me. So my mom's side of the family come from this place near um, Goa called Kokan. Um, and they're very wonderful people. They tread the middle road when it comes to culture, religion. And this particular community in, in East Africa is, uh, is where they really struggle to keep their identity. But I would say that expats, generation one or two afterwards, they really struggle to kind of be like, who are we after all, right? And, and I think they fall prey to what a lot of people fall prey to, which is that they use an enemy to define themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Indian Muslims, and particularly my mom's side of the family, unfortunately, you know, at least the kid had, you know, really um, been uncomfortable with my presence. And sometimes, you know, you can be a symbol of something. You know, might not necessarily know this, but you hold an identity which is different from everybody else's. And I, I don't feel this when I, that I was different. My dad was Pakistani and I was not you know, merged into this very simple Indian Muslim homogenous group. I was different. Now, how did that difference play out? Is I used to be asked questions like, what was the point of being there Indians in, if they're Muslims in India? There was no need to create ruckus and riots. So, you know, when I would walk in, I would suddenly carry the weight of this genocidal reality in someone's head of how Jinnah actually stood for his ego and created the state that he didn't need to just for some kind of seat that he wanted, which I'm giving you a very simplistic idea. But, you know, these are all narratives we hear around the world where it's it's not necessarily phobia like the white world does or the Hindu world does, but it's powered by this general resentment that you made it hard for us. By you, you know, carving out a separate state for yourself, look what's happened to us. You know, now we need to justify ourselves alike. So then what they would do is, not them particularly, but generally Indian Muslims, uh, you know, have a struggle with then either align themselves too much with the nationalist Hindu identity or Indian identity, particularly, even if it's switched back. And they really feel that Pakistanis are this useless, you know, insensitive group of people who just are an accident of history. And that we have the weight to now justify why we exist. Nasser was such a breath of fresh air for me was because he was part of this generation of Pakistanis, which I wasn't because I was an expat, who didn't give a damn of creating that explanation. And it was enough that we were Pakistanis simply respected. And that the the understanding was this is a simple right of self-determination. It did not come into being by an accident. Accidents don't happen. There's often a historical and political context of which one part power groups from another power group and you know um and part of that is is a right that's granted by the united nations so that entire legal context that political context was really for me something that allowed me to breathe easier and we see that today even for example we're sitting here with the israeli-palestinian conflict on our heads and i would just say that when you have to define your identity by Putting another identity down, you know, genocides lead to that. Um, you know, you see that with the saffron-colored Hindutva policies in India, 
we see that even in our country, like we've always spoken up about, you know, what we do to minorities in Pakistan, because, you know, we define ourselves, particularly Muslim or Islamic, forgetting that there's an entire minority group that made this country um, blind to which religion it was, you know, they, they just sought a political uh, recourse and it's fair. So I think all in all, I would just say it was hard growing up half caste or, or half, you know, Kofi Pakistani and having to justify one part to the other, by the way, which I also faced when I came back. I know there, there's a lot of jokes about this, but I had to be like, oh, she's half. And I don't want to reject any of those two identities, frankly. I mean, these are both extremely important political identities, and I do want to merge them, including the African part, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for that uh, wonderful answer, Aisha. And I found that to be extremely interesting because I wasn't aware of it um, um, that particular uh, discussion point. But yes, thank you so much for putting that in the book because it really helped a lay historian my, like myself to, uh, to, uh, to understand the nuances of that particular discussion and the conversation. Um, and, and guys, uh, as, you all, as you both know that our show is based in Dhaka, Bangladesh, so I definitely have to find a way to put Bangladesh into this episode somewhere. Uh, you, you can imagine my surprise that uh, Aisha, 152 pages into the book, Bangladesh does get a mention, and it comes in the form of your father uh, having um, a lungi that he used to wear uh, around the house. So would you like to tell us about that? How did he pick up that habit, and uh, how long have you seen it? Was it something that he did throughout his life, or was it something that he picked up after going to Uganda? Yeah. Um, I, you know, in, in the campus we lived in, they used to say we are South Asia because there was a very close Indian family. We were the Pakistani household and then there was a Bangladeshi household. So my dad was the registrar of that university. Um, the Indian family was the, the librarian uncle. And then the I think there was a, a religious scholar who was Bangladeshi, right? And the three of us really went along. You know, we compared our gardens together. It was, it was a family. So I think Bangladesh definitely always, you know, when you're an expat, you're, your national boundaries sort of blur. And you just get along because you just happen to be in some place. Um, Abu wore the lungi because he was just a very chill dude. Like he loved his, his um, you know, uh, I don't know how would you put it. There's a high, there's a word for it, haigi, which is like just comfort, softness, you know. Um, and he would sometimes um, he was very well dressed externally, like he was in a three piece suit or a kaunda suit, as you say in Uganda. But at home, the, the lungi was a thing, and. Um, so was Bangladesh uh, in that in that matter, and there was always this reference of um, it being like a like a neighbor, you know. Um, so yeah, that cultural thing did, did definitely come in all the time. Wonderful, wonderful. Sorry, I'm so, just happy that you picked up on it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Abu would come. Abu, yeah, please. Would come from work uh, at about three, get into his you know lungi and his like wife Peter Banyan, right? And uh, and then sit and then my mom would just read to him. So and then he would nap. Uh, and that was his routine. Back in the day people, I guess, did have they had a night one. <laughs> okay. And uh yeah, so dare dare I ask, do you happen to own a lungi like your late father in law? No, I don't, but you know what? My father used to go around in Lungi. Uh and he had uh interestingly uh he stopped wearing that once we started living and Aisha came and all of that, but he would. So I have very similar stories. Mm, okay. uh, yeah. My father would approve of being told on a podcast, <laughs> you know, because he was very popular. 
Right, right, yeah. absolutely. So, oh, uh, movies are proper. By the way, the one that my dad wore was like it had a Banarsi edge to it. It was, it was like okay, uh, wonderful. So, yeah, think I think of it like a kilt. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I'm and I I don't own one myself, but uh, I obviously have seen my father and my grandfather wearing it, and they uh, they swear by how comfortable it is. And of course, uh, yes, yeah, I'm sure that you wouldn't trade your three-piece suit for anything, not even a lungi. But yes, uh, thank you so much for both of your thoughts on that, and I really appreciate uh, this particular story that was in the book, Aisha. Um, okay, so so uh, moving on from. Um, your life in Kenya and, uh, and Uganda, Aisha, and uh, obviously you both had met in the States and then the move to Pakistan. Uh, would, you, would you like to enlighten us on what exactly was the one defining factor that actually prompted you to make the move to Pakistan with Yasser? Uh, you mentioned something about turning Pakistan into a truly Islamic uh, Republic, and you and it, this was mentioned right at the beginning. So, was that your motivation? Motivation, Aisha, if I could just yeah. thank you. Um, I have to say yes. Uh, you know, because um, because my dad had this very interesting understanding of um Pakistan, which was a lot of people from that generation a bit you know, pan-Islamist, a lot like um, Islam is, you know, not in uh, conflict with democracy. Islam is not conflict in conflict with secularism. Islam is modern. Islam is about women's education, about progress. My dad was an educationist, you know, and he was very well-read in history and geography. That was his, that was what he taught. So he had this thing about really Pakistan for the Muslims. And he did maybe back that um, there might be people who might not want that identity overall, right? I don't think he went that far. I don't think it was ill-intentioned, but it was a little underdeveloped as a theory, I, I would say that. And I think, yeah, sir, I definitely challenged my own views on that matter about, you know, a lot of, like they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. A lot of people, when they are formulating their identity on a religious context, construct, well-meaning way, be exclusivist, right? Mm -hmm. And so... In Yasser's opinion, Jinnah was the exact opposite, right? He made it clear over and over again in his speeches that, you know, we're not a state to be ruled by priests. And that's what my dad's idea. He really felt that a true Islamic state would be one where there's equality, there's welfare. And so when I was in my 20s, I really thought that I could do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a conversation that we could probably have and we could probably extend it to a two-hour uh, podcast, but we'll try and save it for a future episode. But right at this point, guys, uh, I would like to ask a couple of difficult questions because, after all, Aisha, th these are your memoirs. And, uh, of course, uh, right after your marriage to uh, Yasser, um, it wasn't the most rosiest of pictures, right? So one of the questions that I would like to ask, and, of course, you mentioned it in the book a couple of times, but for the sake of our viewers and listeners who haven't read the book yet, uh, what is uh, the reason why you put up with it or why you chose to stay in, quote unquote, an abusive relationship? And for that matter, why do most women, uh, you know, uh, why would any woman want to continue in a relationship which is deemed abusive? So if you could just help us understand that a bit more. Um, it's a very good question. And I should, uh, that is answered by... My mom, my khalas, my aunts, anybody that I see around me, 
um, you know, right from my mother-in-law who has South Asian descent, who is not normalized into the understanding that if your husband is cross with you, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no one. Um, you know, even in modern relationships, the woman needs to make the man happy, control him, make sure that there's peace in the house is on her shoulders, right? And for the longest time, it was on my shoulders, right? If if somebody was upset, I am not going to figure out that this logical challenge, you know, I'm going to look at it as I did something wrong. Um, and it's a very easy mistake to make. Um, and it's a mistake in which I would say nine out of 10 women in Pakistan understanding but also, you know, there's a very big hashtag in the white world called why I stayed. So you're asking a, a hashtag question. Why do women stay? You know, women stay because generally it's a patriarchal institution. Mm-hmm. Right. And in patriarchy, there's systemic power dynamics that are built in a way in which if you're under um, a situation where you don't want to be in avenues of you to you know, raise your hand and say, yeah, I don't know about this. They're very few. And they're they're global. You know, um, we see that, you know, with Dr. Ford, for instance, and Kavanaugh, I mean, the white perhaps more replete with it. In our cultures, the elders step in to be like, hey, you know, um, figure it out. Let, let's figure it out together. So there's more of a social construct around it where people, there's checks and balances, you know, as brothers or the husband's parents or somebody steps in to be like, hey, you know, first of all, conflict is normal. And in intimate relationships, conflict is even more normalized. But at what point do you realize um, that this who is in a need for help? It's a cry for help, right? And that line is constantly blurred because the institute itself is not designed for equality, it is designed for subversion. It came from it came from the slavery era. It came from the feudal era. It's not supposed to be designed for equals, right? Mm-hmm. And so it will take some time for human psychology to shift around that as well. Now, the reason I like I got my recognition of this could be a problem the day I you know held Yasser's CT scan against the light and. I was like, oh shit, like this is not, you know, this couldn't have been in him. I mean, it all made sense to me. So in a way I got vindicated for the slight doubt that I had being like, if Yasser loses his temper, there is a limit to which the person that I I know, this person is unrecognizable. So what's happening? It's, it, it's you know, now we know that it was probably a, a, a hemorrhage. And now we know that it was probably... Uh, you know, epileptic uh, focal seizures. Now we know there was a tumor personality. And then after the surgeries, all of that was cut. So now we know that there's traumatic brain injury that, you know, did that. But it gave me permission to talk about something that a lot of women cannot or do not have the talk about, you know. Um, there are a lot of people I know, educated women, young women, old women, white women, Russian women, um, Argentinian women who exactly what I did just because they keep doubting it and that this is so systemic, the intimate relationship, sometimes even without marriage, by the way, um, in which, you know, you're, you're, you self-blame rather than find out that this is, this is, and it's, it's a public health problem, by the way, um, you know, where, where one party is given permission, unchecked permission to be angry at their wife.
that's that's what marriage is unfortunately right and uh, and uh, just um, uh, hypothetically speaking aisha uh, let's leave aside you know yasser's unique uh, condition you know his health issues uh, etc um and you mentioned the hashtag why i stayed uh, how should how do you view other women who stay with uh, abusive husbands and should we as human beings ever be judgmental of those who choose to stay versus those who choose to leave uh, what would be your opinion on that and where do you see it and how do you see it i mean look a very simplistic perspective on on this story would be like what kind of phony feminist is she right but i think that it's far more complicated than that with certain point abuse does not just remain one way by the way and this is what trauma does right if anyone who studies dv understands this that sometimes when your unsafe logically unsafe space you become the perpetrator right so i mean if i had the say the audacity to take yasser to task you know even risking the fact that some people might help stigmatize him you know that's how shallow the world is they would like be like oh he's crazy right and that was a risk but if i've taken that line and spoken about it i could not not speak about my role since that were far far from dignified in this entire equation in which you know like i said i had my own little uh, tumor happening in there where i wasn't um like i i didn't think that i would ever stand away i had no local stand i to judge somebody who was mentally ill because i completely it's almost like god made me understand what happens when you were trauma or your brain health is not optimal and in a way it came a full circle where i was like ah oh, okay now having said that just because we are cognitively understanding this doesn't mean it hasn't it's been easy that oh now we figure it out but it's still very you know it's still hard for both of us i'm sure it is for us as well but i think words and literature in a way has healed us and it has allowed us to tell a narrative story and so the chaos it's not chaos that kills people or separates people it's not making sense of it um and in making sense of it i think we found you know some ways back to the beautiful thing of with you know these two young people thinking they can fix everything and you know fight over cutouts and stuff so yeah and uh, and just to add to what what you've just said aisha um do you feel that there is an element of privilege here as well uh, with regards to women uh, for example a, a strong independent working woman like yourself who is financially uh, stable and not dependent on anyone versus uh, maybe a certain class or section of society who are in abusive relationships and they aren't able to get out of it because they can't financially support themselves so Do you believe that privilege uh, has a big role to play in whether women, in in some women deciding to stay or to leave such abusive relationships? Um I would actually challenge that and say that more powerful than privilege is ideas. So I think the real thing that is problematic here that you or a woman shoulders on her shoulder honor of the family. If you look at the very rich or the very poor they don't have that and so when they are in a harmed situation they're out of there they don't even think about it the reason for that is because honor culture is built in the middle class and it's built to maintain stability of those already in power i e men um so that i think is where 
the problem is I was independent. I've always been, you know, never sort of like, you know, we've always had a shared approach to things. I could always walk away. I think the thing that kept me was the idea that, you know, A, I acted that Yasser wasn't well, but without knowing it. Um, and I also wanted that to be true, by the way. It it heals me in a way to, to you know, believe that. Um, and I do believe that, you know. Um, and I think the stop me was just, like I said, it's so systemically difficult to do anything else, no matter how rich you are, no matter how privileged you are, because it's not, um, it always goes worse. You try a little bit, but you can't do too much. You know, So I, I really sympathize with people who, who stay, but I also admire people who don't have the honor code because mm. they don't have to be bound back, if that makes sense. Right, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, so Yasser, I would like to also bring you uh, to this point. Um, I recently read a book called 50 Million Rising by Sadia Zahidi, and I believe she's also of Pakistani origin, albeit a Swiss citizen. Uh, she's with the World Economic Forum. Um, and uh, the 50 million rising um, in the title refers to the 50 million Muslim women the world over who are joining the workforce or who are already in the workforce. So uh, uh, in the Bangladesh context, I, I know that we're extremely indebted to our working women for being, uh, you know, for what for everything that they've done in helping our economy to grow stronger. Um, uh, but but for 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 my knowledge about Pakistan, can you help me understand uh, what is uh, is this also a norm in Pakistan? Do we see more, more women in the workforce joining the workforce in Pakistan, or is this something that is there's still a long way to go and there's still room for yeah. what would be your take on that? Well, I, I would say, of course, Pakistan, you know, is far from where it should be in terms of gender inclusion. But, you know, one can only speak to one's own experience, right? I, my mother is a working woman, you know, sort of Aisha, then I obviously was going to. So I've seen almost every person, every woman I know, you know, as socially is a working, you know, that's just my circle. But you, you're right, Pakistan has, I think, gender on gender parity, Pakistan's what like... Under the, among the worst five always in the past forever. Yeah, so it's, the situation is, but but there are, I mean, the fact of the matter is, unless your women basically are in the workforce, you're basically keeping 50% out, right? I mean, that's what... Uh, said as well, and Jenna also said, no nation can rise to the heights of glory unless your women are side by side. You. Sure. And that's where one looks at Bangladesh. You know, and once like, you know, uh, because that's where I think it's one of the things that your main politicians have done, the prime minister and the opposition leader, they've made women, you know, basically the center of it. I mean, it could have happened in Pakistan with Benazir Bhutto, but there wasn't anyone on the other side. You know, it was Benazir Bhutto carrying on the, the burden herself, you know, of, of that. But uh, in uh, Bangladesh, when you look at it, uh, Pakistan is a long way from where Bangladesh is right now. And that, I think, if you think about it, uh, several factors. Uh, first of all, I've always felt, you know, and I, if I put on my sort of historian, come biographer, etc. hat, uh, I would say that uh, the Bengali people in general are advanced in their approach to uh, politics, work etc they in my opinion not just you know bangladeshis but also east bengalis or sorry west bengalis for that matter 
they've made the rest of the subcontinent, you know, if you, if you think about it, you know, in their approach to uh, these matters. I mean, I honestly believe that Pakistan would not have become this quasi-theocratic state had the Bengali state with us. If you want to compare Bangladesh to Pakistan, obviously, there is no comparison at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I do thank you for saying that, Yasser, because uh, uh, if Bangladesh can help to serve as a model for any country to try and emulate, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it just seems like a no-brainer that if you have something that works, you know, why not just replicate it everywhere else and uh, everybody, in, you know, can benefit from uh, those those kind of policies once they're in, uh, implemented. So, uh, Aisha, coming back to you and your corporate experience uh, in Pakistan, um, would you like to share some anecdotes? Uh, you obviously have a couple of anecdotes in the book, but uh, is, there, uh, is there one anecdote, if you could pick one story about your um, experiences in the corporate sphere? Uh, you know, do please go ahead and mention it mm -hmm. because I'm sure that a lot of our viewers and listeners could benefit from it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the many, I, I, so my career is I played in three sections in which the first part was with the startup ecosystem. Then the second part in Pakistan was uh, with the development sector, you know, and then the third part was, say, with corporate. And before that, in the US, I worked at CNN and uh, National Public Radio. So I, I studied to be a journalist and I studied to be a filmmaker, actually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but somehow I ended up in media communications and then I, I honed myself into corporate communications and public affairs. But uh, um, I would the most um, bizarre experience. Um, and by the way, Yasser has been very helpful whenever I come home with a bizarre experience, being like, I can't take this. Then he gives me cricket analogies about how um, he is hurt. Right? Our mother-in-law is, uh, you know, sick and old and uh, the kids are in the pavilion waiting and I'm the only batsman and I got to do this right. And I just need to take ones and definitely don't hit sixes, but stay in the game, you know, until he recovers. But I think the most bizarre thing was um, where uh, it was, uh, I think, a development sector uh, job and uh, my supervisor, you know, was with the whole team in his room at 3am because that's pretty normal you know deadlines and that kind of thing and then everybody got up and left and I was also leaving and then he's like hey let's stay back and finish this last part which seemed odd but I was like I finished it but I was like okay fine just do that next thing I know I'm alone with him um which was a very uncomfortable situation but I didn't think much of it because I you know one doesn't think like that and then I ended up uh he ended up proposing to me you know I really liked it amazing uh, and, you know, how a situation can quickly get escalated and, you know, it, it's like my, my entire world and my entire universe just ended there because I've always, you know, a place to earn in, you know, and I've always needed a stable job. Uh, we've always had two incomes, mostly. But we've always needed to combine it to raise the girls and that kind of thing. And for that moment, I was like, oh, damn. Because what that meant was work the next day. Because if I go to work, the next day, it, I immediately, you know, I excused myself from that situation and left. But what that meant was that now the cat was out of the bag. There was no pretense. I couldn't face the super um, and I couldn't report him because, you know, this is how it works. It's it's like it's so insidious that if you go after one person, the first thing they're going to say is she made it up. What was she doing late at night in his room and all of that? And you said it myself because I was like, you know, what kind of women's rights advocate am I when I'm letting a perpetrator get away with it? But I had to quit the next day. Like I, I, I just had to go back home. And I was working in another city. Often I had to commute with the family in another 
home, send in my resignation. It was really chaotic because I needed a job. And there was, you know, I, I'm older now and I have a network. Back in the day, I was just I used to go home, go to work, put my head down and work hard. I didn't really you know, have this um, support or depth. And uh, it was really like I was out in the cold. I had a lot of forms. I could have emailed, um, you know, the helpline, called the helpline told them what happened and there would be repercussions. But then I would have a court of trial where my character would be put under a lot of um, scrutiny and I wasn't going to win that war. So like I said, I mean, when people say why I stayed, you know, why I quit is also, you know, something that, you know, you look at your terrain and then you only play the card that you're going to win or you have a chance of winning. And, and in Pakistan, things are so terrible for women in the workforce, um, you know, especially at assistant manager level or second, that it's uh, even somebody as empowered as me could not fight that and I'm just giving you that as an example of I ran away you know and sometimes it, it, the most dignified you can do, thing you can do is run away you know I just want to say something is can I yeah sure yeah. you know obviously this, this is this is sort of you know I mean if you look at it you know your first question why she's stayed why we stayed in this entire situation i mean you know as you have to give me this that i was conscientious enough to realize that i was you know sort of there was something wrong with me and i made sure of this so this could have, but the reason why we stayed was because of this fight that we had with what was otherwise a hostile environment just as you know sort of chalk with their you know indian trover we were here in this hostile environment and we were this so we were stronger together you know and that is why we stayed yeah yes. I, I think if I can ask like Yasser and I came back to our country being like okay we're the safest here and turned out that we were just as unsafe because you know classism racism you know nepotism everybody needs to have a father in this country and both our fathers are dead and even when they were alive, they were they were definitely not minting money. So we we had that understanding that we belong to some kind of minority group and we can never make it in this country. Social cloud, we don't have the other kinds of equity. And, you know, we have two beautiful little egglings together and we got to stick it out for them, you know, somehow. Um, and also, you know, there's a big joke, but we never wanted to leave each other. So why we stayed? <laughs> you know? It's like when I was like, I'm done. He's like, no, please stay. And then when he was done, I was like, no, please stay. So, yeah. Yes, yes. And I think you yeah, mentioned think, that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, indeed, indeed. And I believe you mentioned it in the book, Aisha, that, uh, that you guys never wanted to leave each other at the same time. And so that really played a big role in that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and guys, uh, I have to say one more thing that uh, in that answer, you mentioned your daughters. And I think that we would be doing an injustice to this episode if we didn't mention Zoe and Zaini, your two beautiful daughters. Uh, would you both agree that they have been your greatest achievement in life? Um, keeping, you know, leaving aside Yasser, your self-actualization projects, you know, being a barrister from Lincoln's Inn and Aisha being a career woman in the corporate world. Is it fair to say that Zoe and Zaini have been your greatest achievements? Absolutely. And I would say so. I mean, this only this afternoon, I needed some advice on something. And, you know, Zoe came back with all the advice. And I mean, you know, it's just they're so smart and such intelligent young women. I, I absolutely must have done something right. 
He's very good, and I say that that's what got him really good kids. And um, I'm just generally nice, so I get good kids. <laughs> um, but but yeah, but but a little about Zoe and Zani. I think that we've not met all as parents, and let's just say that we took generational trauma and multiplied it by a billion and hurled it towards them like meteors, right? And I talk about that in the book. I've been quite a terrible mom, especially in the initial years, and. Uh, we're and if this is a story I think it's a story of redemption and that you know it's a nice thing that you know somebody can walk their bad behavior back they can walk their um traumas back and the brain is has plasticity and it head towards the light and we're trying to do that now we're trying to be good by them um they totally don't like think we're cool like they're just like you know he has a lot of uh, people that come up to him and they're like wow you know that to me and just roll their eyes and they're like oh my god if they only knew you know um, how dysfunctional and you know those who's the word pathetic they are but they're really really wonderful children and and what I do wish for them is that they rise above our flaws you know yeah Oh, oh, one. I think that's so beautifully said. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I just want to say, Aisha, that uh, one of the things I really loved about the book is how uh, Yasser's character, in particular, oscillates between being the 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 pri- primary antagonist to being the comic relief character. So you know, and I'm putting it in literary terms. There is one particular story where there's the both of you, as well as uh, Zoe and Zaini. And you all went to uh, for an interview at the U.S. Embassy, if I'm not mistaken, correct? And I, that was a hilarious correct. chapter. Would you like to just tell us uh, very briefly about what exactly was going on? So, um, you know, two teenagers behind us, Yasser and I, are at the immigration counter, immigration options, and this is the final interview. And um, they ask Yasser a question about, you know, have you done anything um, that should be uh, declared? And Yasser goes ahead and you know, given his, you know, extreme honesty and artistic trait, I don't know if it's a moral trait, but it's definitely, <laughs> and he said, yes, I have done something I'd like to declare. And the girls just had a field day with it, being like, oh my God, our dad's a thug, um, you know, and we knew it. It was like a cute little story where Yasser was uh, once after a girl who didn't want him. And uh, yeah, they only people with generational trauma like yeah. them. And, uh, and you know, the, 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 there was that, so there were, they found that when the, the immigration uh, guy just looked at Zoya and Zena, you know, they, they'd spoken to him and he was very impressed by them. And he said, well, it looks like your heart's healed, you know. <laughs> so that was like a cute moment where um, we're like laughing. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I could just imagine it uh, in my head where usually the family puts up a united front and uh, closes ranks. But then to have one member just go the exact, you know, do a complete 180. So I cannot imagine how hilarious exactly. that situation must have been. So yes, it really comes yeah, up really that was, well. It was really hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think um, it's very cute in the sense that the traits and quirks about Yasser that were cute. And like you said, it has have comic relief, like his insane honesty. Like if I tell like, you know, I was like, you're late. He's like, no, I came here at 8.56. You know, he'd have the exact time. Which is comic relief. Now I hated that about him, and somehow, like I say, God just brings me back into the circle of of my own reckoning. Uh, but Zoe and Zainab have his traits, so there's no way that I thought about them. Right, the exact things that I may be upset about in him, that when I see them in the when I see it in the girls, they're just so adorable. Um, and so I think in a way, um, 
yeah, I think uh, taught spiritual lessons over and over again. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so um, so at this point in time, guys, uh, I have a couple of staple questions to ask because we are, after all, a podcast about books, so it's in the title. So, uh, Yasser, uh, I remember we asked you those questions during your episode. So let me, uh, Aisha, put, uh, put, put forward these questions to you. Um, are you more of a fiction person or a nonfiction person? What genre of books do you enjoy? Please? Fiction. Fiction? Okay. Any... I, I absolutely love fiction and uh, I was introduced to fiction um, through Margaret Atwood and I absolutely love her mm-hmm. and you know she's kind of like my little Jenna I mean uh, you know she's my Jenna so she can't do no wrong I wish I had her cut out um, Margaret Atwood's um, The Handmaiden's Tale was my beginning yeah beginning of an understanding of what happens in totalitarian states that use the institution um, marriage or fertility to control women and so I think heart tantrums and brain tumors is my little revolt, uh, you know, um, for that reason. You know, I think that women should just handmaidens. They are, um, you know, just, you know, worthy of dignity. So, yeah, fiction, because in fiction, you can say things you can't say mm-hmm. uh, in real life. Okay, absolutely. And uh, and I just want to add, uh, has Yasser won you over to the Matthew Shardlake series yet? Um, yeah, I mean, he, he's so excited when he talks about them, about this hunchback and how I should about it. And, you know, like he, I, I just enjoy his storytelling version of it. Um, but remember that um, for the longest time, Yasser did, you know, have so many of his faculties leave him. Yasser couldn't read. And I've always known him as an avid reader. In fact, my you know, yearning to write comes from him where he would just once like walk out on, on his phone, he would be able to write a 4,000 word article in 10 minutes. Has a photographic memory and his brain is so sharp and I'd be like, I want to do that. Um, and then there was a time where he could look at a word and not be able to read it, you know. So he's lost so much of his cognitive abilities and some of them have come back to him. By brain tumor disease, the saddest thing I've seen is you know, his loss of reading fiction, because I think it really made him happy and he can no longer, I think, do that with concentration. Okay. And um, so so the second staple question, Aisha, that I have for you is, um, and it's a tough one, that, that, you know, uh, so far that's, is, that's the one response that I keep getting consistently from all our guests, but I'm sure you can give us a good answer. And the question is, um, if you could select a book, that you feel that every young person should read at least once in their lifetime. It may or may not be fiction, it may or may not be nonfiction, but something that is useful or edifying. What would be that one particular book that you would pick? Um, can I just say um, The Handmaid's Tale? Sure. I'm sorry, it's just, it's so boring, but I keep saying that. And the reason is because that is our reality. Women, women are literally vessels for birthing children and everybody should read what happens when, when that happens. However, I will give you uh, an alternate to that since I already mentioned it. I'm currently reading um, Zen Echo Maintenance. It's a, it's a nonfiction book about a son and a man and his son on a journey. And it's about mental health, actually. Um, so I'm really loving that as well. And since it's at the top of my mind, I think everybody should read it. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So we'll definitely have that in the description. And it wasn't that hard. I thought it you were going to make hard. me choose between who I love more, my mom or my dad. <laughs> no, 
no, the book related questions. So yes. So thank you so much for uh, that answer, Aisha. Okay, so guys, uh, we're pretty much coming uh, to our to the end of our episode. Um, but I just want to say that uh, my thanks to both of you for participating in this uh, episode. And this is in fact the first time we've had two guests on the show because we usually do one-to-one interviews. But yes, I'm extremely thrilled that the both of you had the time to come on and to talk about uh, a truly fabulous uh, piece of uh, work uh, that you've done, Aisha. I, I, I actually, before we started the episode, I actually came up with a couple of you know adjectives or ways to describe the book. And so I'll just throw them out before we end it. So raw, unfiltered, astonishing, extraordinary, salacious, shocking, disturbing, dark, humorous, self-deprecating, witty, and brilliant. So that's how I would uh, describe the book. It is an extremely fabulous read, wonderful read. And I would really encourage everybody here to who is listening or uh, watching this podcast to go and pick up the book. Thank you for being such a diligent reader, Umar. I'm um, glad you picked up on things that I don't even remember writing. <laughs> so great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank not you. a problem. Okay, so for our viewers and listeners who have been with us all this time, thank you once again for staying till the end. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe to the channel and hit that bell icon. Uh, you can also download the episode on Apple, Google, or Spotify. Let me just grab the book from behind me. The book, once again, is Heart Tantrums by Aisha Sarwari. Please go ahead and buy the book. It's a fantastic book written by a fabulous author. Uh, and uh, I, it probably is probably my book of the year uh, in terms of autobiographies and memoirs. So yeah, I highly recommend it. And uh, Aisha and Yasser, thank you once again uh, for both being on the show. I really hope to have you guys back for a future episode. Once, Yasser, you finish your uh, book on Kamal Ataturk, I, I believe you're writing a book on him, correct? Is that right? Okay. Yeah. And, and and Aisha, for yourself, any future writing yeah. projects that uh, your fans and readers can look forward to? Uh, I can't believe there would be anyone who's my fan, but I think hopefully everybody in your podcast after listening to this will uh, like what I do. I do think I want to diversify a little bit, but um, I want to write um, like a nonfiction. Next, I've started doing some interviews and it's um, it's about a politician's wife. Oh, a politician's wife. Oh, I, I love yes. the, the no, title. No, the way so <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So we'll definitely yeah. keep our eyes out for that. Um, how far along are you, Aisha? And um, uh, how how soon can we expect that book to come out? So if you could give us some hints. I, I had an idea in my head. I've talked to my uh, agent about it. He thinks it's a great idea, but he's uh, waiting for me to prove it to him that I can okay. actually okay. finish it. Uh, okay, understood. understood. Yeah, so we're in, there. Yeah. Okay, so incubation stage. So we'll definitely... Uh, incubation we'll stage. Right, right. So we'll definitely wait. Yeah, yeah but I'm going to do something about it. Because, yeah. Okay, for sure. Okay, so guys, thank you once again for your time. And, um, you know, you guys have a good day. And uh, let's catch up soon. Thank you so much, Omar. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Omar. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.